to chapter 43. I had had a notion and, uh, that we would actually cover um, more chapters than we are. We're only going to do chapter 43 tonight, so ignore. Um, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that uh, we're just not going to be able to get that, that far. But we'll cover the 43rd chapter tonight. Uh, I believe we'll definitely be done with Ezekiel by about mid-March, and then we'll move into uh, where we're headed next. Remember, the next, uh, next Wednesday we'll have our study, and then the last Wednesday of this month we'll have our monthly prayer again. So uh, that is what we've got on the horizon the next two weeks. But uh, turn with your, uh, your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 43. I won't read every verse, but I'm going to read um, definitely the first 12 verses and then uh, some pieces and parts of uh, verses 13 through 27. Then we'll get into this together. Verse 1, uh, starting verse 1, chapter 43. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that also faces toward the east. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision I saw when I came to destroy the city. Visions were like the vision I saw by the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. And the, Lord, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name, they nor their kings by their harlotry or with their carcasses of their kings on their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and the doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore I have consumed them in my anger. Now I let them put their harlotry in, their carcass, in the carcasses of their kings far away from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the pattern. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, uh, its entire design and all its ordinances, all of its forms and all of its laws. Write it down in their sight so they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. And then in verses 13 through 17, uh, it gives the measurements of the altar. I'm not going to read those because I've got some uh, slides where we'll take a look at the measurements of the altar, verse 13 through 17. Pick it up with verse 18. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinance of the, uh, for the altar uh, on the day when it is made. For sacrificing burnt offerings on it, for the sprinkling of blood on it, you shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priest, the Levites, who are of the seed of Zadok, uh, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. shall take some of the blood, put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge, on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse and make an atonement for it. Now, it goes on, the next three few verses is what takes place each subsequent day, and, and I'll, I'll let you see that as well. Uh, pick it up with me in verse 26. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and consecrate it. So there's a seven-day process here of consecrating this altar. Verse 27, and when these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day, therefore, that the priest shall 
offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just gather here tonight, your children, uh, grateful, thankful, appreciative once again of your uh, just bringing us here, uh, bringing us through another day, uh, Lord, giving us tonight uh, to be together, to open your word. Uh, as Randy prayed earlier, we thank you for this place where we, you've given us to gather. So many don't have what we have, and we just, Lord, want to use it for your glory. Uh, we just ask tonight that as you are in our presence, Lord, that you would just speak through your word. Uh, we'll learn something, Lord, from you, and uh, the things we learn, uh, Lord, we'll apply them and draw nearer to you in our walk and in our life. Uh, I look, Lord, I just want to lift up those in our uh, body who are sick, and I pray for uh, Pastor Billy as well, Lord, that you just heal him miraculously, divinely. But others in our own body, Lord, that have chronic illnesses or those that are sick even tonight, uh, Lord, we just pray your healing touch, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you're joining us uh, tonight, we've been uh, starting uh, with chapter 40, with the millennium reign of Christ and uh, what that means uh, as far as the temple specifically is what we've been looking at. But just by way of review, and some of you um, may have not been with us, and so I wanted to, again, make sure that everyone's aware of where this fits on the timeline. I had people say to me last week uh, that uh, it was helpful just to see and understand uh, where these things fit from a biblical timeline perspective. And... Where we're looking at tonight is all right here in the yellow, the millennium, all right there. But again, as a as way of reminder, uh, at the end of the tribulation period, at the seven-year tribulation, you have the time, of, also called the time of Jacob's trouble, because Israel has that seven-year intense purification process coming out. Uh, we talked about that anyone that comes out of the tribulation period uh, they will either be judged as saved or unsaved. Those that are unsaved uh, will be going immediately to hell at that point as Jesus divides the sheep and the goats. Those that have not taken the mark of the beast and have um, stood firm to the end, they pass through into the millennial reign where God renews the earth, where places like the Sahara Desert will no longer be desert anymore, where places like the Gobi Desert will no longer be desert anymore, where the world will be beautiful and lush and people will live long lifespans like they did pre-Noahic period. So we will see a return to some of those things just for that 1,000-year period. That's the last 1,000 years of the earth before at the end of the earth, at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan is released for a short season. He deceives the nations. There's once again an assault on Jerusalem, which never really materializes because Jesus destroys them himself uh, with his own mouth. So... Uh, but that would take place at the end of the millennium. And then, and just, I added this because it wasn't here last week, but just so everyone knows, that is four arrows going in all different directions. That's what that's, that's eternity. Because the arrows are going in all different directions. Time uh, is a different, well, you're outside of time when you get to eternity. There's no time concept there. Uh, it goes on forever and ever and ever. And also, um, this is when it's in, it's at the end of the millennium. I don't want anyone to be confused Jerusalem in the millennium is not the new Jerusalem. Everyone understand the difference between the two? Jerusalem in the millennium is a revived Jerusalem. It will be the most beautiful Jerusalem has ever been 
on earth. It'll be more incredible, more amazing than Jerusalem was under the time period of Solomon or under the time period of the Roman Empire when Jerusalem was a majestic city and the temple was massive and beautiful. But Jerusalem in the millennium will be the city of Jerusalem revived, refreshed with a new temple that we're looking at tonight and we've been looking at uh, the last couple of weeks. But that Jerusalem is not the same as the new Jerusalem that you see in Revelation 21 and 22 that comes down like a giant cube down out of heaven. Okay, That's the new Jerusalem. This is what we're looking at here is the millennium Jerusalem. Um, if you're saved, you'll get to see both the millennium Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem that comes down as a bride adorned out of heaven from the Father. So those are two different things. Exactly where the new Jerusalem and heaven all fit together, you know, you'll see people write it, but I don't think we fully know. We do not, we definitely don't fully know where the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, uh, it does come out of heaven, and yet it is kind of like it is heaven. But again, that's the end of the, that's the end of the millennium period, that is. So Tonight we're looking at Jerusalem and the temple that's going to be in the millennium reign, but it's not the new Jerusalem of uh, Revelation 21 and 22. All right? So what we want to look at first is what Ezekiel uh, sees here in verses really 1 through 7. Uh, this is the glory of the Lord returning. Now, if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, as a matter of fact, it's, it's probably worth just turning to chapter 1 for just a second, uh, Ezekiel saw this vision of the glory of God in, back in chapter 1. And he sees these, um, for example, in verse 20 of chapter 1, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because the Spirit went and the wheels were lifted up together, for the Spirit was in the living creatures. He sees the glory of God and he sees this, uh, these uh, angels that come with the, the wheel within a wheel. He sees uh, the likeness. In verse 27, as it were, of, of the color of amber, fire all around within, and the appearance of his waist downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire and brightness all around it, like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, uh, and that's chapter 1. And he sees this uh, at other points as well, this glory when he's by the river Chabar, and God also gives him the vision of when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and the glory of the Lord comes back again. So he sees here, uh, Jerusalem's already been uh, captive, been destroyed, and it's sometime later now, and God comes to him again, and he sees this same glory once again. But he not only sees it for himself, he sees that it's returning where? Back to the temple. Because remember, the Spirit of God left the temple because of what? The sin and the wickedness and the idolatry. The Spirit of the Lord left through the east gate of the temple. He actually saw the Spirit of the Lord. You know, it's, it's still true today. You can have a religious organization. You can have a church, but no spirit in the place. Amen? That the Spirit of the Lord... We don't want to just use the Bible, which we do. We don't want to just preach the Bible, which we do. We don't want to just read the Bible, which we do. We want the Spirit of God to be present in our Bible study. Amen? And so the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, the glory of God, was always in the Holy of Holies. 
But when the sin had reached the point where God says, I'm going to judge and destroy the city, before the city was judged and destroyed, Ezekiel saw the Spirit of God leave through the east gate. But now, not only does he see the Spirit of God or the glory of God that is returning, but he sees it actually returning to the temple, back to the temple. So right now there's no temple for the glory of God to return to. Now we still see the glory of God. You know, you see a beautiful sunset. You see a beautiful sunrise. You see just, uh, Jesus talks, even looked at like the lilies of the field. We see the glory of God. Jesus even said, Solomon, all his glory isn't more better adorned than one of these gorgeous flowers. Uh, and so we see the glory of God in a lot of things, and a new baby being born. All these things display the glory of God, but there actually is a manifestation of his glory in heaven that the cherubim around him that I've never seen, but I've seen described. You've never seen, but you've seen described. So we, we understand that God displays his glory in so many ways, and he even displays it just in Christian fellowship, and he displays it in kindness and love, but there is a manifestation that's going to blow us all away. John had seen Jesus in many different uh, contexts, but he had never seen Jesus glorified as he did in Revelation 1, and he fell at his feet as a dead man, it says, because he had never seen Jesus glorified in that manner. So there is a glory that uh, is coming. Now, uh, I circled here that this is Solomon's temple. This is not the Millennium Temple, but when the Spirit of God and the glory of God left the temple, it left Solomon's temple, not Herod's temple that was rebuilt by Ezra and then added on by Herod in the time of Christ and became that magnificent what I would consider one of, one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. But that became Herod's temple. This was Solomon's temple. And when the Spirit of God left and Ezekiel was carried by the Spirit from the river Jabar to Jerusalem to see the Spirit of God leave, the Spirit of God left through the east gate. The glory of God left out the east gate. And he saw the Lord leave the temple. And then this temple, this temple, Solomon's temple, would be destroyed by Babylon. Babylon would level it to the ground. But he sees the Spirit and the, uh, the glory of God return the same way it had departed. And he also sees this glorious vision, the, uh, the majestic, indescribable, does his best job to describe it, wheels within a wheel, all this stuff, the ferment above the ferment, below the ferment. Uh, he sees a throne, a rainbow, all of these things, and you see someone has uh, made a rendering. It's a uh, someone's best guess as how uh, we can uh, render that. But he sees that glory return as well. And lastly, uh, he sees the temple is filled. Actually, not lastly. The third, uh, the third one here. He sees the temple is refilled with the glory of God. Because this temple in the millennium, when God puts this new temple that will exceed all the previous temples. And if we're counting which, how many temples there would be by that point, well, there's Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, originally some would say Ezra slash Herod's temple. And then there would likely be a third temple built when? At the beginning of the tribulation period because the Antichrist is going to defile that third temple. And I believe that this temple is a fourth distinctly different from the previous three, because I think that uh, this temple is so dramatically different in its scale 
and everything else, that it, it makes sense that in the tribulation period, the temple that the Antichrist would defile, that one's probably destroyed in Armageddon, which would be World War III. That would just be obliterated. But this temple, like Solomon's temple, is filled with the Spirit of God. And he sees the temple actually be refilled. And then lastly, a throne is established. Now, the temple didn't have a throne, right? It had the Holy of Holies, but it never had a throne. See, when Jesus comes into this temple, well, he is not just priest, but he's also what? King of kings and Lord of lords. All the previous temples, there was no throne in those temples. You had the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant in it, the cherubim on both sides. As we referenced last week, there's no mention of the table of showbread here. There's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus himself. There's no mention of any of those things. Now, is there an absolute guarantee that none of those elements are there? I wouldn't say that. We'll find out when we get there. I'm just saying that it's not mentioned at all. It doesn't appear that they will be where a throne is mentioned. Look back in your Bibles, verse 7. And then there's a man standing beside, there's a man standing beside uh, Ezekiel. We don't know who that man is. Could be the prince uh, in chapter 44. When we get there. Jesus could be the prince. There's arguments for and against that he's the prince. I'm getting ahead of chapter 44. But there's a man standing beside him, more than likely an angel. Verse 7, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place in the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children, um, in the house of the children forever. Um, so we have this man speaking uh, in your Bible. Uh, there's lowercase. Uh, there's a man speaking, and that uh, certainly is God himself speaking, but he may be speaking as the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's a lowercase, verse 6, man standing beside him. Again, whether that's an angel or, uh, as he could do his best to describe it, uh, Jesus is the one standing beside him and speaking, I don't know. I'm just saying that at this point, here's what we do know. My throne, capitalized, and the place of the soles of my feet. So the Lord will put his throne in the temple, and I believe this, of course, the throne is the throne of Jesus, that he will rule and reign over the world, and all the saints will rule and reign with him. So it's not just a temple that has the elements that we see in the Old Testament, but it actually has this added rule and reign place. Because in the, uh, in the temple that you had with Solomon, or the, even the tabernacle before that, it was just the habitation of the priesthood. David was a king. He wasn't allowed to go do priestly work. He wasn't allowed to set, David wasn't allowed to set his throne up and say, hey, you know, I am king of Israel. And the temple is the, is the premier spot. So I'm going to put my throne in the temple. You know, that would have been blasphemy to put his throne in the temple, except Jesus can put his throne in the temple because who does he really want? He wants his throne right here in our temple, Right? We are called in the New Testament, our bodies are the temple of the living God. And he wants, you hear all the time, uh, pastors would say, who's sitting on the throne of your heart? Well, that's because now we are a holy temple unto the Lord, and he wants his throne here and in the 
Millennium Temple, his throne will be in the temple. The throne will be established there. Next, he talks about these laws of holiness in, uh, in verses 8 through verse 12. And he goes back to, now he's speaking to Ezekiel, who's going to take these words, specifically these ver- words 8 through 12, and he's going to take them back to the, uh, the Jewish captives who have been brought over from Babylon, and he's going to tell them about, hey, the temple that you used to know, gone. Babylon's wiped it out. You'll never see that temple again. But if you turn from idolatry, you will see this future temple. That's what he's telling. So if you were alive and living in Babylon, and Ezekiel gets this vision from God, he would have come and told all of us, hey, y'all ain't going to believe this. I just saw God again. I saw the glory of the Lord. The temple that Babylon destroyed is going to be replaced, and the one that's going to replace it is magnificent, way better than Solomon's, but we have to stay away from idolatry, and we must follow the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. He uh, he, he cites in verse 8 the abominations that took place um, after Solomon had had died, and you have... um, it just got worse and worse. Of course, it started on Solomon's watch. But all the abominations that took place in the temple and the harlotries, and he mentions the kings. A couple of times he mentions kings, and you, you can think of the, the, the various wicked kings like Manassas, who actually did later come back to his senses. Uh, but there was all this harlotry and wickedness and idolatry. Uh, and that he's citing in verses 8 and 9. But then he says in verse 10, describe the temple to the house of Israel. Give them something to dream about. Give them something that they can look forward to to say someday you will see a temple that's even greater. And Babylon was not able to destroy God's temple in the sense that God will lift it back up. Um, That they would be ashamed of their iniquities. You know, we need to look back, even though we're saved, I'm still ashamed of things I did before Christ, aren't you? Now, I don't live under the guilt of it, but boy, you wish you could go back. And it's a reminder to not go back. I mean, you wish you could go back and, and, and redo things and not do some of the things we had done uh, before Christ, but the Lord's reminding uh, Israel here uh, that this future temple is going to be a place of holiness. It will not be inhabited by people who are half in and half out. Well, I, I want to part serve the Lord, and I want to part serve myself. Completely surrendered to the Lord. Write it down, verse 11. In their sights, they may keep its whole design, all of its ordinances, and then they may perform them. So we have three things that are mentioned here. One, God is demanding, demanding, and of course, he's saying that nobody will come into this temple and ever defile it again. Can you imagine the millennium reign of Christ, someone strolling into the temple and say, I'm going to set up a little idol. Does anyone mind? That actually happened under Israel with Solomon and some of the kings after them. Some of Solomon's wives, hey, we'd like one of our gods in there. And then later some of the kings say, sure, we'll actually, uh, some of you can actually go in there and worship birds and uh, all kinds of other things, and you want to worship false gods, the temple's as good as any other place to do it. That will not work when Jesus is there. No one will be able to come in and say, yes, I would like to put up this big black box in honor of Muhammad. Not happening. There'll be no defiling of the temple. That when earthly kings were kind of in control of the land, 
things went off the rails. When the king of kings is in control of the temple, nothing, come, nothing goes off the rails. Nobody gets a wild idea and says, let's do it, and gets to implement it. You wonder how that will be stopped, but you know it will be stopped. It said he'll rule with a rod of iron. So that won't happen. There will be no more defilement. won't be allowed. But he's telling the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, you won't be able to defile it, so go ahead and choose now to give your life fully surrendered to the Lord. Next, there'll be a new temple design. And uh, this is, again, there's a lot of different renderings. I put some up last week, and, and they're all pretty consistent. I mean, they're going to be consistent because they're following, if you're following the, uh, the actual text, they're all going to look somewhat similar, just different colors and some different roof pitches and things like that. But generally speaking, uh, they're going to come out Fairly similar. But it's a new design. This doesn't look anything like, uh, well, I wish, shouldn't say anything. This part, the actual temple sanctuary itself, has a lot of the same. It's the same kind of rectangular design. But beyond that, there's many, many differences. We talked about uh, the gates, the kind of uh, portages you come through uh, those gates, uh, the three different gates into the temple, the east gate, uh, and then you have uh, the north and the south gate there. There is no west gate into the temple area. When we get to the city of Jerusalem, there are four gates into the city of Jerusalem. That's subsequent chapters when we get into. There are four gates into the actual city, but only three gates into the temple area, uh, which is in the center area of what will be Jerusalem. So there's a new temple design, and God says, hey, write all this down, describe it to them. Because when they hear it, they'd be like, unlike the rest of us, they, they had seen Solomon's temple. They'd be like, oh, time out. That doesn't look like what we remember. That's bigger, way bigger than Solomon's temple. That's a new design. They would know that, and they would know that something greater, far greater. Solomon's was like a seed in the ground. This will be an expansion. And lastly, a most holy area. The whole area, he says in verse 20, this is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Not just the temple area, but the mountain that it's on and all the area around it. When we get into the division of the land, uh, a few chapters from now, we'll see that uh, there's a holy district. uh, That um, There will be still, in the millennium reign of Christ, there still will be people that choose to sin. This will not be the place to choose to sin. That God has put a ring fence, if you will, on this being the most holy area. Now, people are going to come as we just, uh, we're going to get into the altar in just a second. People will come to present sin offerings because they they will have uh, sin in their life and they will want to uh, make a statement of desiring to be holiness. But the hard attitude, no one would want to enter into the holy area of the temple with a flippant attitude. The same way just Sunday, we partook of the Lord's Supper together. The Bible says don't take of the Lord's Supper, what? In an unworthy manner. There's things in life you can do flippantly. Taking the Lord's Supper is not one of them that you should. It doesn't matter what color socks you chose today. If you want to be flippant about the color socks you chose, somebody may laugh at you depending on how you, how you color coordinate your clothes. But that's not all that important in the scheme of things. But how we present ourselves when the taking of the Lord's Supper is not something to be trifled with. Well, similarly, the temple area being holy, it's not something you'd want to say, hey, 
I couldn't care less if I have my heart right or not. I'm just going to stroll right on in there. Not a good idea. The whole area will be most holy. The law of holiness. Now let's take a look at this uh, consecrated altar. This is another rendering um, of the altar. You can see the top part there. There's uh, the... where there's, Sacrifices would go right on the very top. You have the four corners of the altar, the horns, and then it's tiered. So you've got a, a greater settle here, and a foundation at the bottom, then steps where the priest will go up and take and put those uh, animals on the actual altar itself. And the altar in the Old Testament had a great system as well. I presume that this will also be highly necessary because this altar is far bigger than any previous altar. All the other altars in the, in the uh, prior temples, they were impressive, but they are nowhere near the size of this particular altar. This is a mammoth structure for its intended purpose. This gives you some of the, uh, the measurements here. So it, at the hearth, where you saw the four, uh, the four horns, it's, a, it's done in cubits, but if we convert the cubits... Um, it's about 21 feet, so that's a perfect square. 21 feet wide, 21 feet long, perfect square, 21 feet at the hearth. That's where the sacrifices would lay and be consumed and would be go up as that incense. Now, we all like, uh, speaking of incense, most of us like to cook out, right? Even when your neighbors are cooking out, you like the incense of what's going. All of a sudden, you get a desire to cook out when someone else is cooking out because the smell. And so, uh, you know, we would have that same aroma of meat going up on uh, the altar there. And so you've got the hearth, uh, the hearth there of 21 feet. And then at the bottom, the base is about 31 feet, still a perfect square, about 31 feet in either direction at the very bottom of the base. And then from the bottom of the base all the way up to the top of the hearth is right here about 19 and a half feet high. I walked it off in my house just to show my wife the size of it. I said, you've got you to see this thing. Visualize it. Well, this is the best I can do for you guys. So I put this together. Here's your average-sized person. There's a basketball goal. There's the altar. That gives you an idea of person next to the basketball goal, 19 and a half feet. The top of, the bas- the top of a basketball backboard is about 13 feet. The rim is 10 feet. The top of the backboard is 13 feet. And so you'd have to go another six and a half feet up. But of course... When you're talking about the base being 31 and a half feet perfect square, go home and walk off 31 and a half feet in all directions. Or just walk off the 21 feet in both directions. That's the grill for all the sacrifices that are constantly going to be going on this. Because remember, the world's popular. And, so, and yet, in, in some ways, it's huge. And in other ways, you think, Maybe with a population, you need to build many more of them. Um, I don't know what that speaks to. Maybe that even in the millennium reign of Christ, we know a lot of people are going to turn against the Lord at the very end and are going to follow after Satan. 
uh, we're not given much in the way of parameters as far as how often and all these things that, that individual people, we know the priests are burning sacrifice every day, but how often are people uh, intended? But we'll look at uh, some things around that in just a moment. But this gives you an idea how large it is. Now, one of the questions that pastors and Bible teachers and theologians have had uh, for years, matter of fact, that one, one individual who's, uh, I believe, an expert on all of this and has studied it a long time, um, said that uh, the common question more than anything else is, why is there animal sacrifices when Jesus has already died on the cross? Does anyone else have that question? Why in the world are there animal sacrifices when Jesus has already paid his own, with his own blood? So this is the question we want to take a look at. Here's what we do know. Before we try and answer that question from the Scriptures, here's what we know. Look at these two verses. This is just many verses I could have chose, but uh, first and foremost, Hebrews 10.4 tells us it is not possible. Not possible means not possible in biblical terms and in real terms. That the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. All right, so we know that it is a project in futility to keep sacrificing animals and think that you would go to heaven because of your animal sacrifices. The Bible says never, ever did animal sacrifices ever atone for sin, but they were always looking forward to the atoning blood that was coming. Romans 6.10, Paul says, for the death he died, he died for sin once, once for all, for all time, for all people, for all sin. His blood really does. You ever see the Sherwin-Williams thing where the, the paint can uh, is red going over the earth? That's what Jesus' blood did. It really covered all that would ever come to him. Animals, sacrifices, none of those things could ever atone for sin. So, the question's still there. Why do the animal offerings return in the millennium reign of Christ after he's paid, after Jesus already paid uh, as his MB in the Passover lamb? Well, there are some people that think this is all figurative. I don't agree with that at all. There will be people that, would, you know, you, you can... You can find scholarly works where some will say, oh, I don't believe there, you have, you have a millennial view. You ever heard of that? A millennial. Don't believe there is a, don't believe there is a millennium. They believe that, uh, that this is all figurative things. Uh, there, there are those that hold that view. And, and, and there are really strong Christ-loving Christians that hold that view. So I, you know, I, I know other pastors that hold that view. I firmly disagree they can be wrong if they want to, but um, anyway, there is that view. I was kidding, by the way. But I really think they are wrong. But that's not because I'm right, and not because you're right. If you agree with what, what we're looking at, it doesn't matter. But it's, I believe what the Scriptures are pretty clear on this. Everything else that Ezekiel's talked about uh, is always real with a figurative picture painted of something real that is going to happen. In other words, even if he was building a little model of a siege mound, there really was a siege that came, right? 
everything that he said would happen in Jerusalem, that he had to be kind of the picture story of it, really did happen. And he really did see the vision of God. And he really did see this future temple. And he really does see a millennium reign or this future time when animal sacrifices return. But we, because we're in the church age, we're post-resurrection, post-Christ coming, dying, and raised from the dead. We would have more. He wouldn't have had the same question when he looked at it, right? He would have thought it was normative that there would be animal sacrifices because that was exactly what he would have seen in Solomon's temple. So Ezekiel wouldn't have thought that was a strange thing. We, looking back now, do because we know Christ has already come and he has given his blood as the spotless Lamb of God. So why do these animal sacrifices return? Well, I'm sure there's more reasons. And there's things that God will explain to us when we get there that uh, none of us would know. But here's some things that I think the Scriptures point to that we can look at as valid reasons uh, from the Scriptures of why these animal sacrifices return. The first and foremost... Uh, Number one, it's a type and a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ. Look at Hebrews 10.1. Now, the writer of Hebrews was going back before the cross to say that when people used to sacrifice, present to the priesthood, I want to have this lamb sacrificed as a sin offering or a peace offering. It says, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, the sacrifices prior to Christ were always pointing to him that there was a future sacrifice coming that would be perfect and would no longer need to be offered again and again and again. So all the animal blood was pointing to the spotless lamb of God. Just like at the Passover when they put the blood on the doorpost. That was pointing to what? Head, hands, blood would drip to the bottom. There's the cross right there on the, pa- on the door, uh, the, uh, the doorpost and the lentils of the door. That would be, again, pointing towards the future blood of Christ. This is pointing back. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is there in Jerusalem in the money of Mary and Christ. He's actually in their presence. Nail-pierced hands, nail-pierced feet will be visible to everybody, and yet he's still reminding people with an image. I just did this a couple seconds ago. I could have described to you the altar and how big it is, but when I physically, when I gave you a visual representation of a little person, a basketball goal, and then the altar, it made more sense to you probably the size of it. When Jesus is having the whole world continually see animals sacrificed and their blood shed, it's constantly reminding the world, I shed my blood. I shed my blood for you. I shed my blood for you. I shed my blood for you. It's a constant reminder, and it gives a more vivid picture. So it's a type and a reminder. Number two, it's a reflection and a compliment of praise. Now, when we gather, the Bible tells us to offer the sacrifice of praise of our lips. When we worship the Lord in song, you ever felt like not worshiping? Of course you do. You ever felt like not singing because you're just not, you're not in a good mood? You're not happy? Something didn't go your way? I had one of those today. Uh, yesterday, no, two days ago. I go get some stuff done with my car. 
I take the key off the ring, get, uh, get the car worked on, come back. I have the set of keys, and they give me my key, and I start the car up. And it was cold, so I said, I'll just put it back on the ring when I get home. Somewhere by the time I got home, I have no idea where the key went. So I got to have a locksmith come today because I called Ford, and they said, we can't help you. You need to have it to No, that, uh, 2004, you have to have a locksmith. These kind of things, life little things say, this doesn't make any sense. And yet the Lord still wants us, when, when something doesn't go right, he still wants to offer this, us to offer the sacrifice of praise from our lips, right? It's a sacrifice. Now, it's actually a step of, of faith to say, Lord, I'm going to praise you no matter what. I mean, that's a piddly little thing in the scheme of things. It's not important. It's not cancer. It's not. But again, we bellyache and complain about things all the time, don't we? Or is that just me? We do. We, we get bent out of shape about things, and then the Lord says, you need to re-sacrifice your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your words. And so this sacrifice of uh, the animal's continually will be, the smoke will keep going up, and it's a reflection of the fact that praise should always be going up to God. People should all, men must always be giving praise and thanks to God. And then lastly, the third one here, and again, these are three, I think, uh, are very clear biblical answers for us. It's not a definitive list. Jesus is sure to tell us, and here's the other reason why I did it, and here's the other reason why I did it, here's the other reason why I did it. Or he may not tell us at all, and we'll just, in our spirits, know in the millennium reign of Christ. It'll all just make sense. We'll know even as we're known. But whatever the case may be, this third one is important as well. A completion of the sanctification and of the special role of Israel to the world. The first two can apply to anybody, because the whole world will not be Jewish, but the whole world will see the constant type of sacrifice, and then the praise, well, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Jesus wants you to come to Christ, and he wants you to continually offer the sacrifice of praise, just like the animal sacrifices would be continual, so would the sacrifice. But the third one is special to Israel, because Israel has a special role. Look at Romans 11, verse 26, 27, on the screen. So all Israel will be saved, as is written, the deliverer will come. Where will he come? Out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness. Think of the verses we just read, 8 through 12, the king's carcasses, all the wickedness. All, he'll turn away all that stuff from, the, from Jacob, for this is my what? Covenant with them. I was thinking about this. Um, Israel has never really uh, we have a love for Israel in this church. But the nation state of Israel, as much as Israel has tried, they've never really been on the bike without falling off all that long in carrying out what God gave to Moses for them to do, right? It wasn't that long before they're in the wilderness. Golden calf. Get that straight. Then they complain. They have to stay there 40 more years. Then they get into the promised land, and then they have judges, and they, they fall back. They move forward. They fall back. They move forward. Uh, the tabernacle's in disarray. Then David comes along. He can't even build the temple even though he wants to because he has his problems. He's a man of bloodshed, not to mention the Bathsheba thing. Uh, so he, he doesn't build the temple. Solomon builds it. Then he has his issues, right? And on and on it goes. So there's never been this su- sustained period where the whole world would say, so that's God's chosen people. 
but for a thousand straight years. If those are your parents, you kind of know how this is. You're going to tell your kids, we're going to get it right for one hour. Just one hour. Right? It's almost like God being the, the heavenly father says to Israel, now let's get this straight. For a thousand straight years, you're going to get it right, and you are going to be the model that I always designed you to be. Isn't that great? Again, I don't know what to make all of it. I've mentioned it several times, but where it says, all Israel be saved, I just wonder, you know, what does that mean in the millennium reign of Christ? Does Does the group of Israel that come in, they all stay faithful to the end? It's kind of this light and a witness. I don't know. Certainly the priesthood will do that. We'll get to them next week when we look at the sons of Zadok as well as the Levitical priesthood. But that's the third piece of the puzzle here, and I'm sure there are others. But those are three reasons why I believe the animal sacrifices return. None of them are weird reasons. None of them are really, wow, I can't even comprehend that type reasons. If you're looking for like really, wow, I'd never even comprehended type things, those things... Maybe, uh, maybe as well, but they're reserved for the Lord. All right, so the consecrated altar. How does these uh, seven days look? It's actually eight days. The eighth day something changes. Uh, we, while we're reading along, this is what's taking place. So that massive altar, God says there's a special seven-day ceremony to sanctify it. Remember before the children of Israel, before Joshua had them cross into the promised land, before they went across the Jordan, Joshua told the children of Israel, sanctify yourselves before we go in. Right? It's a good thing to, you know, maybe before, uh, before you enter into worshiping or before you uh, are going to lead a Bible study or something, you, you pray and just kind of get all the dirt off. Right? That's kind of what this is, is. God says, you build the altar. And we don't know how it's built. I don't know if God puts it there, but nevertheless, once the altar is there, they can't just fire it up. You know, God makes us go through processes in life. We think as soon as we know something, we're supposed to be wound up and just go, and God says, no, no, no. Paul, right after he got saved, you would think, well, well, Paul went and set the world on fire. No. Quite a long time before Paul was actually out planting churches, he had a seasoning, and God even does it with structures. There's a seasoning that, that God will do in your life, and there's a, a time where he's sanctifying you. And I remember when I first got saved, guys laid hands on me in, in the late 90s and said, someday, and I, I, I was a little bit disturbed when they said this, but they said, someday you're probably going to be a pastor or a missionary or something. I was happy doing what I was doing, but it came later than I thought because God was going putting me through a sanctification period, a time of pulling me through and saying, all right, then after this is done, then there's this day, then there's the next day. And they might be marked in your life as a couple-year period, then another period after that. And it's a sanctification process. We as believers are being sanctified all the time. Amen? You're being sanctified now, whether you know it or not. So we go through these sanctification periods, but God does this for buildings sometimes. He does it for land sometimes in the, in the Bible. And so here he does it with the altar. They couldn't just say, hey, altar's built, start throwing on the sacrifices. Had to be sanctified first. Now what happens if we don't do things the way God's asked to do, to do them? Big problems. We're gonna, now, this is not the time that Israel's going to mess this up again, right? It'll be done exactly in the past. They might have gotten some of these things wrong, but not here. Day one is the, the bull of the sin offering. And so when the bull is sacrificed... Here's a little picture of it. 
So when the bull is sacrificed, the blood is put on where? The four corners, and then it's put on the corners of the ledge, and then around the rim. Day two, the altar is cleansed, uh, the same as with the bull on day one, but three things take place on day two. First, it's a small goat, or a young goat, kid of the goats. Then it's a young bull, so a second bull, but a young bull, uh, and there's salt thrown on it as well. And then the third is a young ram, and salt is thrown on again. You know, we are called to be what? The salt of the earth. And we're called to give our bodies as what? Living sacrifices. We're, we're called the salt of the earth by Jesus, and we put ourselves in the altar, our own salt, that God will take it, and our sac- Romans 12, 1, it would be what? A sweet aroma, sweet incense to the Lord. Days 3 through 7, same process as day 2. Uh, <clears throat> so all days 3 through 7, you, you, you redo day 2 again, again, and again. All the way through to the seventh day. So you purify it. I don't know how God comes up with the things that he comes up with, but this is his way. And I, there's a part of me that thinks it's really cool the way God does all these things. Even though I don't understand. How about you? Like God has, a, he has an absolute roadmap for everything. And nobody in the, in the millennium reign will say, well, um, I don't really like doing that for the third straight day. I don't think that makes sense. Learn as a believer, if God says it, just accept it. Just accept it. We don't all have all the answers. And then the eighth day, the priest can then offer the people's burnt offerings. Now the, now the altar is sanctified from the eighth day forward for the whole rest of the millennium. Thousands and thousands of days. The eighth through all the other days are the same. Bring your offerings, bring your sin offerings, bring your peace offerings, and you can imagine that 21 foot by 21 foot, the amount of sacrifices that can go on it regularly, unbelievable. And we will see it coming to a close here. So looking at the altar, some kind of closing thoughts here. One, we see the size of it. You see that it would be an inferno on top of 21 by 21 with different sacrifices up there. We see the size of it. It, 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 is, it is impressively large. It's, we see the importance of the consecration details. We see the importance of, in our life, the altar of our life. We have to consecrate it to the Lord, right? We have to consecrate it. We see that that altar is big because sin is really big. There's a lot of sin in the world. It's a reminder that just like the constant blood sacrifices tells you it's a reminder of how much Jesus' blood had to cover trillions upon trillions upon trillions of sins. It's a big altar. It's a big job because Jesus did the biggest job ever when he put himself down, laid his own life down for our sin which reminds us of the magnitude 
of the blood sacrifice of Christ. So again, just looking at the altar, and you might even wonder as you look at it, uh, verses 13 through 27, there's actually more verses dedicated to the altar than to the glory of God returning to the temple because it's a reminder that we, the world, has a sin problem and that Jesus sent himself as the answer to that. And now we give ourselves and surrender to him that he would cover us with his blood. And uh, I don't know, I, you know, you look, at a, you look at a passage like Ezekiel, or uh, these chapters in Ezekiel, and when you first glance at them, uh, and you first read them, they might not register as kind of spiritually enriching. You're like, they're just, they seem like at first just information. But the more you marinate on these things, it'll, it'll go deeper, and it won't just be informational. You start to see that there's something transformational that God is showing us. Amen? That he has something, just like in the future, this will be bigger. He has something bigger in store for us. Always something. And just like we don't understand all these details, or even why God does it that way in our own life, he will do things in our life that we won't understand why those details were that way, will we? Why did you arrange my life like that? But we have to trust him because all of these things are exactly the way God ordained it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow before you now. We, uh, we do, Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus, Lord, that all the blood of bulls, goats, animals could never, ever satisfy our sin debt. And Lord, we also want to uh, just once again say, Lord, not only do we love you, but uh, your throne, just as it'll be in the temple, Lord, we want to have your throne firmly exalted in our hearts, you sitting on the throne of our hearts. Lord, us presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, as the salt of the earth, Lord, that our lives would be a sweet aroma to you. Lord, we look forward to seeing these things in person, but Lord, even now we would pray that as Ezekiel was to express to those that were the captives there in Babylon, Lord, that we would make our decision to rid the idolatry and the things in our own life that would compromise and bring, uh, Lord, defilement in our life. Lord, we want to have those things out of our temples that we would be rightly representing you, walking in your spirit. We know that, uh, Lord, you inhabit the praises of your people. Lord, that we would uh, be continually offering the sacrifice of praise as the offerings would go up. We want to, Lord, have the power of the spirit flow in our lives and filling our temple as you refilled the temple. And Lord, we ask for your help in all these things and your blessing in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.